Part 4 of An Excursion to the Lakes in Westmoreland and Cumberland, August 1773, by William Hutchinson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Derwent Water From a short description of the beauties of Keswick, which was written by the late ingenious Dr. Brown, and which we had then in our hands, we were impatient to enter upon the lake, and thought every delay irksome which kept us from the enchanting scene. We hasted thither, and from Cockshoot Hill, took a general survey of the lake, which, though inferior in size to Hullswater, is yet very different in its beauties, and afforded us many delightful scenes. The water, which still bears the name of Durnwater, though embodied in so great a lake, said to be ten miles in circumference, was transparent as crystal and shining as a mirror, over whose surface five fine islands were dispersed. The nearest in view was covered with yellow corn, the rest clothed in wood. The hills are lofty, arising on every side from the margin of the lake. Here the mountains were in some parts covered with grass, in others heath. There the rocks were grown with shrubs and brushwood, which hung in their apertures and creeks. Little valleys of cultivated land presented themselves in the openings and windings of the mountains and small enclosures and groves of oaks stretched up the precipitous ascents of every hill from the brink of the water, save only at the head of the basin, where the mountains were more rugged and romantic. We hurried to the boat that we might enjoy the pleasures of this place in their greatest perfection. The general view was magnificent and beautiful, but we wanted to take each pleasing scene apart. We ordered the boatmen to coast round the nearest island, called Vickers Island, containing about six acres of cornland, on the eastern side of which a few sycamores formed a little grove, covering a hovel which varied the hue with a rich green and gave to the whole a picturesque appearance. Here we found a sweet shade, whilst we hung upon our oars to listen to the sound of the waterfalls which struck the ear from every side with an agreeable solemnity. Now we had the valley to the right, opening upon our view, and extending a rich plain towards the northwest, three or four miles in breadth. The strips of corn and little groves scattered here and there gave the most pleasing variety when contrasted with the verdure of the mown meads, struck by the rays of the morning sun and happily opposed to the adjoining mountains. In this vale, the church with some seat houses showed their white fronts, over which the mountains arising to the right were stupendous and gloomy, as they stood covered with clouds. There Skiddo raised his head, and, with a peaked brow, overlooked Saddleback and Causey Pike, together with a chain of mountains stretching away towards the northwest. whilst, on the other hand, the hills and rocks which stand on the Bassnet water form the other wing of an lofty avenue of mountains, which extend into the distant plains. We were told by a person we met with at Keswick that Skiddow, from the plain of the lake surface, is 3,450 feet in perpendicular height, but as we had no means of proving the truth of this calculation, must leave it to others to ascertain. We coasted the right-hand side of the lake, where the hills, gradually retiring from its margin, rise to their summits covered with herbage. Here we had a view of the little valley of Newland, which winds about the feet of the mountains, and, with the finest verdure from the small enclosures of grass ground, refreshes the eye, 
which had laboured with upstretched looks over the vast heights that on every side shut it in. There cattle and sheep were seen pasturing. Some little cottages were dispersed amongst the hedgerow ashes, whilst the shadows of the hills suffered the sunshine to fall only in strips over the vale. We landed at St Herbert's Island, which contains about five acres of land, now covered with young trees, famous for being the residence of St Herbert, a priest and confessor who, to avoid the intercourse of man, and that nothing might withdraw his attention from unceasing mortification and prayer, chose this island for his abode. The scene around him was adapted to his gloomy ideas of religion. He was surrounded by the lake which afforded him fish for his diet. On every hand, the voice of waterfalls excited the solemnest strains of meditation. Rocks and mountains were his daily prospect, where barrenness and solitude seemed to take up their eternal abode. From the situation of this place, nature had given three parts of the year to impetuous hurricanes and storms. The fourth alone provided for the rest. Here this recluse erected an hermitage, the remains of which appear to this day, being a building of stone formed into two apartments, the outward one about 20 feet long and 15 broad, the other of narrower dimensions. He was a contemporary with St Cuthbert, and as the legends of that time say, by the prayers of that saint obtained a joint or equotemporary death with him, in the year of our Lord 688. The passion for solitude and a recluse life, which reigned in the days of this saint, and was cherished by the monastic school, although at first sight may appear to us uncouth and enthusiastic, yet when we examine into those times, our astonishment will cease whilst we consider the estate of those men who under all the prejudices of education were living in an age of ignorance, vassalage and rapine, and we shall rather applaud than condemn a devotee who disgusted with the world and the sins of men, consigns his life to the service of the deity in retirement. We may suppose we hear the saint exclaiming with the poet, Blessed be that hand divine which gently laid my heart at rest beneath this humble shed the world's a stately bark on dangerous seas, with pleasure seen but boarded at our peril. Here on a single plank, thrown safe on shore, I hear the tumult of the distant throng, as that of seas remote or dying storms, and I meditate on scenes more silent still, pursue my theme and fight the fear of death. Here, like a shepherd gazing from his hut, touching his reed or leaning on his staff, eager ambition's fiery chase I see. I see the circling hunt of noisy men. Burst law's enclosure, leap the mounds of right, pursuing and pursued, each other's prey. As wolves for rapine, as the fox for wiles, till death that mighty hunter earths them all. Young. I fell into a reverie and begun to mutter thus to myself. It seems unnatural for man to deny himself of the aid and consolation which are derived from society and to contemn the sweets of friendship. The poet says, Poor is the friendless master of a world. When we talk of friendship in general, the friendship of the world, we are amusing ourselves with a superficial view where objects are so grouped and colours fall in such a happy assemblage that all is beautiful and delighting. But when greater curiosity or necessity demands a strict survey of the several images which formed 
this pleasing prospect, you find on their separation that they lose that excellence which their union or their distance maintained. There is little of true friendship on this stage to enhance the value of life. The corruptions of the age have contaminated it, and scarce anything more is left than the name. When it is even found with consanguinity, it is a rare essence at which men stand agape. I have known examples where genius and merit have dawned upon a youth, surrounded with opulent friends who have stood gazing on him like statues of stone, without stretching forth a hand to save him from poverty, whilst the fine gifts that providence had endowed him with languished in fetters, which by their patronage might have been brought forth and saved, even by the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. I doubted not the eye of heaven regarded their insensibility with kindling wrath, and to reward the sacrilege, deprived them of every enjoyment with which the finer feelings of the soul bless mankind, and left them nothing but the animal economy and the disgraced image of humanity. I had shown some distortions in my agitation through this whispered soliloquy, but uttering these last words with a degree of vehemence, Arising on the progress of my ideas, my companion catched me by the arm and roused me, saying, The boatmen already think they've got a passenger that is frantic, and express by their looks their wishes to be rid of us. But to return to our hermit, there is no history of his life and actions to be met with, or any tradition of his works of piety or miracles, preserved by the inhabitants of the country. We now pursued our voyage by a noble woody scene, where Brandelow Park, arising from the edge of the lake with stately young oaks, extends its groves over two round hose or eminences, and behind them, after covering a little intervening valley, rises on the side of a mountain to a considerable height, and forms a woody amphitheatre fringed with some small strips of corn, which grow under its skirts, whilst all above are stupendous hills and rocks. The straight boles of the trees, together with the verdure of the ground under their shadow, which was perceived a great depth in the grove, by reason of the distance at which the trees stood from each other, formed an uncommon and solemn scene, which being again represented by the reflection of the water, seemed like enchanted haunts, where dryads met with naiads, in the happy regions of the genius of the lake. We arrived at the borders of Manisty Meadow, a flat of a few acres at the foot of the mountains, where we anchored our boat to enjoy the pleasures of the situation. To the left, the nearest object was a wooded island, edged with rocks, behind which Brandelow Park and Oaken Groves, dressed in the deepest green, covered the hills which arose immediately from the margin of the lake, and from thence stretched up to the foot of Catbell's Mountain which laid so near to us that it required the eye which viewed its summit to be turned upwards directly to heaven. On our right, at the distance of about 100 yards, laid another small island on whose rocky margin brushwood and willows hung fantastically, above whose thickets the distant shores were seen, where the mighty cliffs of falcon and wallow crags projecting showed their grotesque and tremendous brows in a lofty line of rocks beneath the feet of which a strip of cultivated lands and woods shot forth a verdant promontory, which sunk gradually into the lake. In the centre of this view, after stretching the eye for the distance of three miles 
over a basin of the clearest and smoothest water. Spreading its bosom to the noontide sun is a large mount called Castlehead Rocks, rising in a cone and covered with oak wood, behind which a lofty mountain raised its brown brow, dressed in heath and sunburnt herbage, exceeded only by Skiddow, covered with blue vapour and capped with clouds, which terminated the prospect. Holswater gives you a few but noble and extensive scenes, which yield astonishment, whilst Keswick abounds with variety, with wilder and more romantic prospects. After passing Bank Park, a rocky and barren promontory on which a few scattered trees looked deplorably aged and torn, we entered a fine bay where the mountains rise immediately out of the lake, here standing perpendicular, there falling back in ruinous and rude confusion, as being piled heap on heap from the convulsions of chaos in the beginning, and in other parts shelving and hanging over the lake, as if they threatened an immediate fall, the whole forming a stupendous circus. To describe this view is difficult, as no expression can convey an idea of the subject, where the wild variety consists only of various features of the same objects, rocks and mountains forming and constituting the parts of this massive theatre. In the front of this romantic scene, a small mount presents itself, covered with herbage, small from the mighty stature and gigantic members of the other parts of the prospect. Overlooking this mount stands a round rock, pushing his mountainous brow into the clouds. On the summit of the mount, sweetly contrasted by the grey rocks behind, there grows with peculiar picturesque beauties a single ancient oak. The lake beneath was a perfect mirror, o'er which the giant oak, himself a grove, flings his romantic branches and beholds his reverend image in the expanse below, Mason's Garden. On each hand the cliffs and mountains are strewed over with bushes and shrubs. Down whole sides small streams of water trill, like so many threads of silver, giving a delicate mixture to the greyness of the rocks over which they passed, and which in many places arise perpendicular, and are rent into a thousand rude columns, as if they had been torn by thunderbolts. In other places they are of a tamer aspect, and compacted in one solid mass, stand with firmness as the pillars of the antediluvian world. Where the hills were separated, little vales filled with wood or narrow winding dells of grass ground twist around their feet and give a happy variegation to the view. In some places clefts in the rocks afforded a prospect into a valley behind. In others the overhanging cliffs formed rude arches and apertures through which distant mountains were discovered. Behind all were mountains piled on mountains where the clouds rolled in heavy volumes, giving a gloominess to those regions of confusion and barrenness which rendered the lustre of the shining lake and the streams of light which fell upon the rocks, waterfalls and shrubs brighter and more pleasing. Here, e'en in the dull unseen unseeing dell, shall contemplation imp her eagle plumes. The poet here shall hold sweet converse with his muse. The curious sage who comments on great nature's ample tome shall find that volume here. For here are caves where rise those gurgling rills that sing the song which contemplation loves. Here shadowy glades where through the tremulous foliage darts the ray 
that gilds the poet's daydream. Mason's Garden. In the cliffs in this part of the lake, eagles build their nests, far removed above the reach of gunshot and undisturbed by men, for no adventurous foot ever dared to assail their lofty habitation. In the sight of the cottager hither, they bring the spoils of the fold or the field to feed their young, superior to the wrath of the injured. On these shores, a salt spring of very salubrious quality is found, but like the sulphur spring of Holdswater, is neglected. We next visited a very extraordinary phenomenon, an island about 40 yards in length and 30 in breadth, grown over with rushes, reeds, grass and some willows. We would have landed upon it, but as the water was said to be 40 fathom deep in that place, and the attempt rather hazardous, we desisted, and had not the means of inquiring particularly into its nature. This island arose about four perpendicular feet above the surface of the water on which it floated. From its magnitude we were not able with one boat to try whether it would move from the perpendicular line of its then station, or whether it was bound to and connected with the bottom of the lake by the roots of any aquatic plants which appeared upon its surface. The boatman told us that it had not floated for two years before, and that it is seen at many seasons by reason of the clearness of the water, a great way from the surface of its action of rising or subsiding, as it frequently descends to and rests upon the bottom of the lake, but it never shifts its station. This change of floating or sinking cannot be affected by any greater or less quantity of water in the lake at any one season, for on inquiry we found in the rainy seasons, the lake is very little increased in height, its outlets receiving the additional water as fast as it flows in. We now pushed up the river which feeds the lake and anchored near a little but pleasant habitation called Loch Door or Lodor, a place perfectly adapted for the abode of a recluse and much preferable to St Herbert's Island, lying open to the southern sun, sheltered from the north by mighty mountains which almost overhang it and fronting to the widest part of the basin it commands a view of the several islands, Manistee Meadows and Brandelow Parks, with their oaken groves hanging from the ascent of the mountains, shade above shade, Catbells and the adjoining crags surmounting all. We were landed on a plain of meadow ground, which descended to the edge of the water, over which we passed to an adjoining wood at the foot of the rocks, behind the Lodor House. After winding through several passes in these groves and thickets, we gained a situation where we were delighted with the noble objects which presented themselves to our view. Around us was spread a grove, formed of tall young oaks, ash and birch trees, which gave an agreeable coolness and shade. Above the trees, with uplifted looks, to the right we viewed a mountain of rock called Shepherd's Crag, forming a rude circular mass, shelving from the foot towards its crown in a spiral form, on every plane of which, and every step, that hung upon its sides, herbage and shrubs grew fantastically, whilst the very summit wore a verdant cap of grass. To the left there arose a perpendicular grey cliff, said to be a thousand feet in height from the lake, rent into innumerable fissures, and standing like massive columns in rude arrangement, to support the seeming ruins of a shattered tower, grown white with storms and overlooking shepherd's crag some hundred feet. In the opening between these stupendous rocks, the river pours its whole stream, forming a grand cascade 
near 200 perpendicular feet high. As the channel is rugged, the water makes a sheet of foam and roars amongst the caverns and the cliffs, so that you are deprived of hearing anything beside its tumult. Reaching the wood where the descent is less precipitate, it winds amongst the trees, sometimes showing itself and at others totally concealed, while it serpentines towards the lake. The spray which is dashed around the rocks and carried upon the breeze wherever it meets the rays of the sun through the openings of the cliffs takes the colours of the rainbow. One would conceive Thompson had this cataract in his eye when he wrote his seasons. Smooth to the shelving brink, a copious flood rolls fair and placid, where collected all in one impetuous torrent down the steep. It thundering shoots and shakes the country round. At first, and as your sheet it rushes, broad, then whitening by degrees as prone it falls, and from the loud resounding rocks below, dashed in a cloud of foam, it sends aloft a hoary mist, and forms a ceaseless shower. Nor can the tortured wave here find repose, but raging still amid the shaggy rocks, now flashes o'er the scattered fragments, now aslants the hollow channel rapid darts, and falling fast from gradual slope to slope, with wild infracted course and lessened roar, it gains a safer bed, and steals at last along the mazes of the quiet vale. On turning from this grand spectacle, the greatest beauties of this lake are thrown into one prospect. The ground whereon we stood was rugged and rocky, shadowed with trees, looking over a rich bosom of wood. Below us lay the Lodor meadows, where groups of cattle were dispersed, and by the shore some carpenters were repairing their boats, a circumstance which enlivened the scene. The shining lake laid in one smooth plain, reflecting the azure sky, chequered with clouds, over which the Vicar's Island, yellow with corn, and the woody islands were fortunately arranged. The mountains, whose feet were trimmed with wood, lay in long perspective to the left, Castlehead, with its embowered cone and Lord's Island arising from the opposite shore, intervened between us, and the Vale of Keswick, which laid on the background, coloured with all the beauteous tinctures of summer, over which the awful Skiddo, with his inferior race of mountains, frowned in azure majesty, and closed the scene. Here were all those beauties of colouring which the late Dr Brown described the natural variety and colouring which the several objects produce is no less wonderful than pleasing, the ruling tints of the valley being those of azure, green and gold, yet ever various, arising from an intermixture of the lake, the woods, the grass and cornfields. These are finely contrasted by the grey rocks and cliffs, and the whole heightened by the yellow streams of light, the purple hues and misty azure of the mountains. In this prospect, one finds all the order and beauty of colouring mentioned by Mason. Vivid green, warm brown and black opaque, the foreground bears conspicuous. Sober olive coldly marks the second distance. Thence the third declines in softer blue, or lessening still, is lost in faintest purple. Claude, in his happiest hour, never struck out a finer landscape. It has every requisite which the pencil can demand and is perhaps the only view in England which can vie with the sublime scenes from which that painter formed his taste.
we now returned to our boat and sailing within some little distance of the shore had a view of the waterfall where the beauties of the lake to the southeast lay in a pleasing perspective. We looked over a small part of the basin from whence to the left a stupendous mountain of rock arose on whole skirts and in the rents and clefts of whose sides trees and shrubs climbed almost to the very summit. Before us laid the wood from which we had lately passed under whose shade low door house and enclosures were seen inclining towards the lake above which the lofty precipice the waterfall and shepherd's crag were seen in all their variety of beauties whilst all beyond the mountains formed a crescent enclasping a sheet of water of two miles circuit mountain behind mountain and rock behind rock fell here in fine perspective and brought to our minds those astonishing scenes which characterise the pencil of Salvatore. We passed from hence in our return to Keswick by the coast, where we were shown a cliff that projected over the lake, called Eve's Crag, from its bearing some similitude to a female Colossian statue. We next passed Wallow Crag, in which a large opening is formed by the parting of the rocks, bearing the name of Lady's Rake, from the escape which Lady Dernwater made there, by climbing these horrid and stupendous heights with such jewels and valuables as she could secure when her unfortunate lord was apprehended for a traitor. We now reached Lord's Island containing some few acres covered with wood where are the remains of a mansion of the Dernwater family. Formerly this was only a peninsula but when the place was made the residence of the Radcliffs and Dernwaters it was severed from the mainland by a ditch over which was thrown a drawbridge. This must have been a beautiful retirement. Travellers cannot behold the ruins of this place without yielding a sigh for the sins of the world and bewailing the dire effects which attend on ambition and the crimes of princes. End of part four. Recorded by Derwent Water at Keswick.